Welcome back, everyone. It's our usual half-term special, um, which means that it's usually a little bit more free and loose. Uh, the edit is a little bit freer than usual as well. Um, and hopefully you like that because maybe you're listening to this sat in your pyjamas <laughs> with a cuppa and uh, a piece of cake or a biscuit or something else that you like. <laughs> Yeah, because it's half term and uh, we always like to encourage our student teachers to use their breaks, actually take their breaks. And we do that through the medium of uh, removing the increasingly flimsy mask of uh, <laughs> substance that we attempt to wear in the other episodes. Uh, grab a load of stuff shamelessly off the Internet that's interested us in the last few weeks uh, and just read it out to each other. Absolutely. And at this point in time, as it's half term, I'd like to just take this opportunity to say well done to anybody working in education at the moment. You have gotten through the first term back uh, post a lockdown. Um, I would imagine there are some very, very tired teachers out there and indeed pupils. Um, but speaking specifically to our student teachers um, who have just gotten through the majority of induction, uh, at Cardiff Met um, they might be reeling a little bit with the kind of jumping workload so well done to you too um, take a breather take a pause and hopefully you will find what we've got to share with you interesting amusing um, or just a break <laughs> from yes. the usual stuff we put out yeah so we're going to give our usual kind of mixture of blog posts I think you've got some books we've we've grabbed a few tweets uh, we might try and squeeze a funny news story in before the end uh, just for a bit of a laugh <laughs> Um, so shall I start uh, with a blog? Go ahead, I'm all, all ears. Right, here we go. So this blog uh, is from um, a friend of the podcast, Mary Myatt, the mighty Mary Myatt, and I hope she's keeping well since we uh, saw her at Research Ed. And I suppose this is the one maybe that's that's partially going to fill our, our well-being or something to try kind of uh, quota for the episode. <laughs> and uh, it's a good one to think about maybe during half term. And it's maybe something we've all been thinking about more and more as we've reconfigured our teaching for, uh, you know, the coronavirus situation. And the, the title of the blog is Should It Stay or Should It Go? And Mary Myatt says this. I'm, I'm going to abridge it slightly on the fly. Uh, we find it Ooh, hard to throw... What would Mary say about that, Tom? Sorry, I'm just uh, going to interrupt gonna... you right there. <laughs> Mary, I am going to abridge you on the fly and I really hope you don't mind. Uh, <laughs> if she does mind, well, she'll have to come and find me. Okay. Um, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm following the, uh, the question of the blog title, which is should it stay or should it go? <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Go ahead. Here we go. We find it hard to throw things away, to trim, to prune back to the essential. There are many reasons for this. Sometimes we just don't notice how things have piled up. We just get used to there being more and more. Sometimes we hang on to stuff in case it comes in useful. And sometimes it can all feel too much to try and sort out what's still needed from what can be thrown away. However, we cannot just keep adding more and more to our work schedules. Otherwise, we'll go under. But it takes bravery and discipline to ask ourselves, do we really need this? What would happen if we got rid of it? And yet, if we want to create the time and space to focus on the important work, we need to roll up our sleeves and do some metaphorical cleaning out of the attics. Our guiding principle for this work might be William Morris, who said we should have nothing in our homes unless we know it to be useful or believe it to be beautiful. 
When we place this idea within our work context, we might ask ourselves whether the systems and the resources and the materials we're working with really are useful. And as for beauty, this does not mean that we decorate our worksheets with sparkly butterflies, but instead ask ourselves whether they're fit for purpose, whether they're really clear and carefully designed to make sure that pupils can really learn from them. So then she goes on uh, to discuss the AT20 principle, which came from this uh, this idea that uh, in 19th century England, uh, broadly 20% of people owned 80% of the wealth. I mean, that might have shifted slightly since then, uh, possibly. Uh, and she kind of twists the question into, well, we ask ourselves a question, what is the 20% of our work which has 80% of the impact? Or what is the impact of the work we do outside the classroom? Does all of it have real impact? How do we know? She then name checks the, the mighty Marie Kondo um, with, with this idea that we, we want joy, that keep the things that, that give us a sense of joy. Um, and, and we should think about that in a work context. Um, ask ourselves why so many of us allow ourselves to be surrounded by disorder. Um, arguing that visible mess helps distract us from the true source of the disorder. So the, the mess itself might be, kind of, you know, the symptom rather than the cause. And she says, there are usually two reasons why, reluctant, why we're reluctant to let something go, an attachment to the past or a fear of the future. And translated into a school context, or I guess a university context, this might be, well, we've always done it this way. Or what will happen if we change our policy from marking every piece of work to whole class marking? The prospect of facing up to the fact that we might need to do things differently. And this can take many of us out of our comfort zones. Um, and so she says, when we release ourselves from some of the things that are getting in the way of cracking on with our best work, which work which has impact, it is liberating. <laughs> and actually, we do have a lot of these conversations, don't we? And, and we were in the lucky position, I suppose, uh, at Cardiff Met of being forced. We probably didn't feel lucky at the time. We, we were forced to kind of put aside our existing uh, initial teacher education programmes and start again from a blank sheet of paper. And it was a long and arduous process. Uh, but we, I think we all knew that, that the programmes that we were running were uh, basically were just a series of sticking plasters, uh, you know, of about 20 years old, old stuff together and it was a good thing to do and it was it was good to kind of rethink things and obviously we've had to rethink things now when we, we're having to deliver more of a blended learning kind of approach it's a difficult process and you do sometimes have to go and, and tell somebody that you're you're binning something that they think is terribly important but it, it's good to just remember that and ask yourself should this stay or should this go and maybe nothing nothing gets a free pass <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, I I agree with all of that. Um, I, I did hear a, a, an interesting kind of retort to um, the Marie Kondo effect. I can't remember who it was, but there was a, a brilliant article put together by someone who was like, uh, "Well, actually, I might want to keep it." Uh, was it you who was telling me this, Tom? I might want to keep it if it's not beautiful or interesting. I, I'm actually quite like being surrounded by things that might one day be beautiful or interesting. Yeah. I did read an article which was was basically saying that. I mean anyone that knows me really well will know that actually I'm I'm brutally unsentimental about stuff like that so it probably wasn't <laughs> me saying it because I I am the the master of the kind of sudden frenzy of throwing things in a bin bag around my house <laughs> yeah no I, I I do agree with this and and what's interesting is that it is it's causing ha having been working with student teachers now for several weeks it's causing them to 
consider um, their approach to uh, the way they're engaging with the asynchronous materials, what they prefer as learners at uh, postgraduate level. You know, so us going through the process of, you know, working through our metaphorical cupboard of stuff is also causing them to consider uh, what what they're getting a lot from what isn't working for them so there's kind of this knock-on effect. everyone seems to be having really good conversations about teaching and learning right now because we've been put in this position where we've had to bin some stuff and we've had to think about doing things differently so it's a really interesting time in education you know notwithstanding a massive global pandemic yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it has been good to have those conversations. I mean, without being kind of too rude about the place, when when I did start here, I remember there were times when we were all given the same PowerPoint and told to go and deliver it to our classes. And you'd literally have 12 highly paid academics <laughs> delivering the same thing in one way traffic to a kind of comatose room of students. And I remember even at the time, and what was that? That was that was five years ago, just going, what are we doing why are we doing it like this and mm. and it was because we'd always done it that way you know and it was probably the the easiest thing was to dig the powerpoint out and email it round again and tell us all to get on with it but obviously that was a terrible use of absolutely everybody's time including ours and the students and i think we've been pleasantly surprised how much of a big hit it's been that the students are able to consume slightly more on their terms now yeah yeah i agree and you, it 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 takes me back to um, something that I shared on the podcast, I think maybe this time last year, about novice questions and the power of kind of placing yourself in a position of a novice and going, why do we do it like that? Um, and we're kind of all novices again at the moment yeah. because we've, we haven't experienced these sort of circumstances. So it's, it's causing us all to really question why are we doing it that way? Should we be doing it that way? Is that resource still fit for purpose? And it, and we'll carry on that conversation. I have no doubt in, you know, when we do come out the other side of this, whenever that may be, and uh, and we'll be asking ourselves, do do we, you know, go back or do we move forward in a different way? Yeah, and I suppose on a kind of, on a kindness angle, it's, it's probably important to bear in mind that not all colleagues find those conversations easy or those those kind of processes easy, particularly where technology is involved. And, and I know we made the point very early on, didn't we, here, that when we were moving to a blended learning thing, that we're all good teachers. Everybody, you know, who's who's got experience of teaching and is doing their thing in the classroom, we're good teachers. And if you maybe don't feel quite as whizzy with the kind of doing things a new way as the person next to you, doesn't mean you're a bad teacher uh you know and if you are whizzy at it you've probably got a responsibility to to look out for those people who who will be whizzy at it let's have a growth mindset about this they will be whizzy at it they may not be right now yeah and i guess it's worth at this stage just flagging up another podcast episode we've got coming down the line for those of you who uh want to think about how technology might be incorporated in a purposeful way uh into your practice um we're going to be reviewing daisy christodoulou's teachers versus tech uh book a little bit later on down the line so keep an ear out for that okay thanks tom Thank you. On to you then. I believe you've yeah, got a book. I have got a book um, and this has got hopefully some nice sort of offshoots to it. Um, so this book was actually recommended to me by one of my student teachers on the Teach First programme. Um, it's Emily Bater. I hope she doesn't mind me naming her, but she, she tweets a lot and she's 
a huge support to NQTs out there in her school, but also she's very um, vocal in on Twitter, um, very, very supportive, very engaged in the kind of edgy Twitter um, movement. So um, I'd like to thank her for recommending this. And I must admit, uh, before I read this uh, very short abridged extract from it, that I haven't actually read the whole book yet. <laughs> um <laughs> But um, I've uh, I've read the introduction and I it, I I felt that it might really strike a chord with our ITE students, um, indeed all of our listeners, hopefully. But it's a book by Kate Clanchy called "Some Kids I Taught and What They Taught Me." Um, so a bit about Kate Clanchy: uh, she's a writer, a teacher, and a journalist. Um, and in 2018, she was appointed MBE for services to literature and an anthology of her students' work entitled "England Poems from a School." And this was published to great acclaim. And if you fancy following her on Twitter, she tweets as at Kate Clanchy One. So um, I'm just going to dive straight into this and I'm going to talk to you about a tweet that came off the back of this from another of my students that led to, to an interesting stream. Okay, so this is her introduction to this book. 30 years ago, just after I graduated, I started training to be a teacher. As far as I remember, it was because I wanted to change the world and a state school seemed the best place to start. Certainly it wasn't a compromise or a stopgap year. I had no thought of being a writer then. Soon, I was much too busy to write, even if I had thought of it. Teacher training is hard, a crash course, not so much in the study of education, but in the experience of school, in the taking of the register and the movement of chairs from room to room, in the flooding sounds of corridor and stairs, in the educational seasons, from the tempering heat of exam week to the crazy coziness of Christmas, and above all, in the terrifying confidence trick that is classroom discipline. It is a bodily experience, like learning to be a beekeeper or an acrobat, a series of stinging humiliations and painful accidents and occasional sublime flights which leave you either crippled or changed. If you are changed, you are changed for life. Your immune system will no longer raise hives when adolescents mock you. You may stand at the door of a noisy classroom with all the calm of a high wire walker poised to quell the noise with a twirl of your pole. Now, I can still confidently tell rowdy adolescents to behave on the bus, still enter a classroom and look at the back row in the in indefinable teacherly way that brings quiet. I still want to change the world and think that school is an excellent place to do it. I've never got tired of classrooms and have always except when my children were very young, been employed in some capacity in a state school. Soon after I got my second teaching post though, I started to write in my spare time and holidays. A few years later, I began selling journalism and cut down, to my, and cut down my teaching hours. And when I was 30, I published my first book. Suddenly, I found that if I introduced myself in my new guise as a writer, I'd be asked what I wrote about and how, and listened to with care that seemed exaggerated, even silly. I realised I was accustomed, when I talked about my work, to hardly being listened to at all. Because everyone tells school teachers their jobs. Everyone from politicians in Parliament and journalists in newspapers to parents at the school concert and pensioners on the bus. The telling ranges from the minutely pedagogical, how we should set, mark and test, to the philosophical and psychological, how to punish and reward, 
all the way to the religious, church schools, mindfulness, and politicised issues such as the reintroduction of grammar schools. Tellings come in the form of laws, political manifestos, editorials, crazed comments in online forums, and, amazingly often, a conversation with someone you've just met. Partly this happens because people are so interested in schools. Most of us were formed there, many of us have children there. But it's also because people feel free to set about a teacher in a way they never would a doctor or a lawyer. For teachers have a lower social standing than other professionals. This isn't just because we are paid less, as I found out when I entered the even less well remunerated but far more prestigious profession of writing. And it isn't just because of the messy practical nature of teachers' work either. Laymen do not tell a vet how to go about birthing calves or a gynaecologist how, where to poke. It may be because so many teachers are women or, or perhaps because we work with poor children. And it is certainly because few of us are posh ourselves. Teaching has always been the profession of first resort for graduates from working class backgrounds. It's because of gender and class prejudice because, in short, most teachers are miss, as working class pupils call their female teachers in England. Miss, I have heard so many professional people express distaste for that name, but never a working teacher. Usually the grounds are sexism. But real children in real schools don't use miss with any less or more respect than sir. Miss grates on the ears of those who have never heard it use, used well, as it grated on me as a middle-class Scot 30 years ago. No longer. Miss is the name I put on like a coat when I go into school. Miss is the shoes I stand in when I call out the kids in, in the corridor for running or shouting. Miss is my cloak of protection when I ask a weeping child what is wrong. Miss is the name I give another teacher in my classroom in the way co-parents refer to each other as mum or dad. Miss seems to me a beautiful name because it has been offered to me so often with love. I would like more people to understand what Miss means and to listen to teachers. There is so much to love in school. I'm writing this in September, school's new year. I'm snug in my study writing. I would rather be in school. Teaching has taken me on a long journey out of my class and my nation. It takes me, every time I go in, out of myself. Today the corridors are full of the young, of new pupils and of old pupils renewed. Things have happened to them over the summer. They're different, experimental people, full of themselves, eager to tell me about it. The register is fresh with names, the exercise books are crunched open at the spine, the page is blank and smooth as Larkin's spring leaves. Begin afresh, they seem to say, afresh, afresh. I fall for it every time, every year. You come too. And that's it. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I just, um, what I really liked about that was it kind of ad addresses um, some of those <laughs> issues surrounding the teaching profession and perhaps you know we often uh, we've talked in the past about the teaching profession being deprofessionalized de because of accountability culture because it's not a master's profession but I just really like this point that she makes about the kind of fair game that teachers seem to be for anyone and everyone to kind of have an opinion and and tell them how they should be doing their job um and, uh, and and I just really, I, I, I really support Kate Clanchy in kind of coming out and 
really kind of fighting teachers' corners there, um, and um, and just kind of pointing to the kind of uh, complexities of what we do. That you know, albeit everybody should be able to share an opinion and a view about what teachers do in the classroom, um, but the teacher is the expert and knows the nuances that people who haven't been at the the chalk face, as it were, would would wouldn't be able to know or understand. Yeah, I remember always thinking when I was in uh, in the classroom, everyone's got an opinion about teaching because everyone's been in school. <laughs> That's probably why. But it can be very frustrating. <laughs> you know, everybody thinks they know what what teaching is because they were once a pupil, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I also like the note of kind of reverence she has for um, her pupils. And obviously the book is called Some Kids I Taught and What They Taught Me. Um, I attended a really interesting CPD session uh, a week ago that was um, through an organisation called Open Drama UK. And it was in conversation with somebody called Ned Glazier, who is the uh, artistic director and kind of co-owner of a company called Company 3. Um, they're based in London it's a youth theatre company um, and he said something that really struck me oh just just for the record as well he's also um, co-authored with or co-devised with a group of his youth performers um, a piece called Brainstorm um, that was based on the work of Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore um, who is, I want to say, an education psychologist who's done a lot of work on the adolescent brain. This is a long meandering sidetrack. I'll get to the point in a minute. So anyway, Ned Glazier made the point in this CPD session about how adolescent voices can be really unheard in the media um, and can really be missing. Um, and it had struck him that he'd heard some adolescent voices at the start of lockdown, but that he really hadn't heard them in the media up to that point. And he strongly believes that, you know, adolescent theatre um, should have its own voice. It shouldn't be theatre made for youth. It should be uh, theatre made with youth because, youth because their perspectives, their voices are really important. So, you know, what Kate had to say and just about the kind of the sense of promise and, and growth that these young people will have been through over the summer and obviously in the current climate uh, throughout lockdown it's really important that we create a forum for those voices to come through yes we've got a curriculum to live to deliver but you know the magic happens in the classroom that ephemeral stuff happens when we allow a bit of a tangent and we allow our, our pupils to kind of bring a bit of themselves to uh, to whatever it is that we're learning about anyway that was a big long tangent but it's half term so maybe you went with it or maybe you went and grabbed another cuppa it's the time for tangents isn't it I was, I was just thinking about the miss and sir thing I really don't miss being called sir uh, it was because <laughs> I think most of the time it was probably said less out of respect and more out of not being able to be bothered to remember what my actual name was <laughs> I don't mind. I I quite liked Miss. I quite liked it. Yeah, I don't. I yeah. Yeah. I, I, some people love it. Some people hate it, don't they? It's a, that's an interesting historical hangover, actually, isn't it? The Miss thing. I hadn't really fully thought about that until I I had a conversation with somebody about it. That uh, mm. yeah, you would you would not have carried on in teaching uh, once you were a Misses, would you? Back in the day. That's a very good point. That's yeah. a very good point. So you would always it's, have been a Miss. I would always have been a miss. It's funny, actually, how um, those those habits die hard because uh, I, I've got several um, 
you know, ex-students who I'm still in touch with, um, not just from a HE capacity from when I was back in secondary school. In fact, one contacted me last Friday, which was my birthday. She contacted me to wish me happy birthday and to let me know that she is now a teacher, a primary school teacher. Um, and uh, <laughs> and her opening was um, happy birthday, miss. <laughs> and then obviously in, bra- in brackets, she put Emma. Um, so it's yeah. just, yeah, it's it's nice. It's warm. It's, it's part of our identity. Um, I'm happy with it. Yeah, well, I, I'm starting to see people I taught in school coming through onto the PGC now, and, and they tend to pass me the corridor and say, "Hi, sir." And I'm sort of saying, "I'm not, I'm not sir anymore. I'm a reformed character now." Yeah, it's like when your aunt or uncle says to you, "Right, you're a bit old to be calling me auntie now," and and you or uncle now, and you just like, "I can't. I just can't." It's like a respect <laughs> thing. I just, I just can't do it. Yeah. Um, anyway, on that note, um, on this note about, you know, working with young people uh, over a period of time, getting to know them, building those relationships and what they come to teach you. Um, I was on Twitter at the start of this month. It's uh, We're in October now. And um, this was a tweet, um, what she's calling a, a kind of late night musings from Georgina Saunders, who's been on the podcast before. I think it was this time last year, wasn't it? It was. Um, so she's got a couple of tweets and there were some really nice uh, comments that and a bit of a dialogue that ensued on Twitter from what she wrote. So the first one reads... This year, I have a lively year nine class who I taught in year seven and love how the expectations remain from when they left off over over one year ago. The drive is still there, relentless. They ate up the opportunity to do an English language pass paper in time conditions today. A rainy Friday lesson three. I'm beaming. Um, So that was the first one. Uh, and there were a couple of nice comments um, that uh, came off the back of that one. Um, but then the one that I uh, felt compelled to comment on, sorry, I'm just doing a bit of jiggery-pokery with my phone. Here we go. Is this, late night musings continued. I wholeheartedly see how teachers remain in a school for, uh, for cohorts at a time. What a pleasure it could be to see my very first year sevens through to their GCSEs. Um, And this really struck a chord with me. Um, So I responded, great sentiments, Georgina. I wholeheartedly agree. Relish those times. To this day, one of my proudest moments was watching my year 11 performance exams externally assessed. Um, I had taught them from year seven to year 11 and their work was exquisite. And then Lisa Taylor, um, who is in IT over at the University of South Wales, also replied and she said, totally I taught in the same school for 20 years my children went there um, plus we live in the area strong relationships with staff learners parents carers and the community made it so rewarding and central to who I am easier to move on than stay through thick and thin question mark and then Georgina says, it is interesting what you say about being more embedded in the community. It is what I've noticed the the most in the start of my third year. I can't begin to imagine how emotional the the end of those 20 years, years were, Lisa. And then she says, thank you. Building strong relationships is so important, really helps with supporting learners, their families and staff can be emotionally exhausting too. But it's it's much more than a job, isn't it? It was very emotional, but I left on secondment, which meant a gradual transition. I just thought that this was a really lovely celebratory 
um, exchange. And I really, you know, when you have like the envy of someone that's never read a book that you have, then you know that it's mm-hmm. incredible. I, I kind of really felt that 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 feeling for Georgina. I, I know that when she gets to, you know, what, what she's craving there, the, the, to year 11 with this group of year sevens that she's taught many of since they began, you know, there really is something quite special about seeing those young people grow, knowing that you've contributed um, to them finding their voices and and to be empowered by the knowledge and skills and experiences that you've helped them develop. It's it really is something quite special. Yeah, it reminds me actually, and this this leads on to the tweet I'm about to to read that. Um... I, you know, I obviously I left the classroom in in 2015 to come and do this job, and I had this absolute wonder class of GCSE, and they were they finished their year 10 when I left, and I was just, although I was really excited to come and start this job, um, I was really sorry not to see those those guys through to GCSE and beyond because I know there were a lot of real big success stories there, and they went on to study at university, uh, my subject and that sort of thing. So, yeah, you do get very attached uh, once you've been mm. in a school for a while, you get very 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 attached to to your kind of your classes um yeah Mm. very much so so tell me about your tweet then tom uh well this is a little bit out of character but (laughs) (laughs) you skirted around the edges of it there come on let's have it well, I, I was really, really pleased to see this. I, I received this tweet in my kind of notifications at the end of last week. And obviously it's, you know, we're all pretty tired at the moment because although the PGC is only at the, the time we're recording this, we're only in week three of the PGC. There are an awful lot of weeks before that where we were absolutely flat out. So I don't mind admitting I'm pretty tired and I got to Friday afternoon. Um, and there was a pair of tweets from uh, a lady called Mandy G. Uh, who, as you will see, is a parent of somebody who I taught quite a long time ago. It starts by saying, this memory popped up on Facebook. October the 16th, 2013. I had a lovely surprise this morning, a postcard from Yian's music teacher in school singing his praises. Yian was so delighted when he saw it and kept saying he couldn't believe it. What a wonderful way to praise a child. And then she goes on to say, Yian had just started year eight. So this was in 2013. Uh, This Mm -hmm. postcard from his music teacher... Uh, me was the start of his love for music he just started piano lessons in school and wanted to play like mr breeze and look at yaya now sometimes it's the little things that mean so much and underneath that she's posted um a big double page spread in a magazine i'm not quite sure what magazine it is but it's a massive picture of the the big foyer in the royal welsh college of music and drama anyone who's been there will know there's a big big shiny kind of public front bit with a cafe and the entrance to the concert hall and the theater and all of that and they've got all these Mm. pianos out in the foyer all these Steinway pianos and Yian is sitting at one of these pianos because he uh, just after I left I think he went on to study at the junior conservatoire at the Welsh College uh, which oddly enough I taught in for a while and uh, then went on to accept a place at the 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 senior Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama with a scholarship to study music. So good on you, Yian. I did an absolutely wow. brilliant job. He was an absolute legend. I'll be completely honest. I don't remember sending a postcard home. I did occasionally have these little outbreaks of uh, niceness in amongst all the kind of <laughs> mean teacher stuff. And clearly, I mean, Yian was an absolute legend from the minute he joined the school. But it, I had no idea it had uh, such a such a big effect when I sent that postcard home. And obviously, he did go on to work really hard uh, in all his subjects and music in particular and is now doing a music degree at uh, Wales's National Conservatoire so I was very very chuffed to hear that I 
played a really small part in that um, in giving him some encouragement when he was in year eight so massive thumbs up to Yian and massive thumbs up to Yian's mum you know there's a few few of my ex-pupils floating around uh, doing music professionally and you know in the West End and stuff like that although I'm sure there are also a lot of them floating around doing completely different things who I hope enjoyed at least some of their music lessons with me and um, yeah just gave me a lift on a Friday afternoon so thank you Mandy G and well done Yian um, thank you for sharing it, Tom, because I know that uh, us teachers, we, we can be quite humble individuals and, um, you know, it, it doesn't come easy sharing <laughs> success. Isn't that weird? Um, but absolutely well done to you. And, and you know, this is something that um, our programme director, uh, Viv, often says in the first week and, and indeed our Dean um, Julie Longville often says is it's about teaching making all other professions possible and how memorable you will be um, as a teacher you know people will remember you for 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 years to come um, and you know sometimes that will be for, <laughs> yeah, for reasons say. that you <laughs> not always for the right reasons not always for the right reasons but in in many in most cases for the right reasons so hopefully that gives you a lift uh, in this half term episode yeah and pgc students enjoy enjoy that when that happens to you as well because it's good uh, and do share it i'm i was much more comfortable sharing the, the story about when i fell over and smashed my face in on the floor than i was that tweet but there we go i've done it <laughs> <laughs> and there are plenty of those out there i can tell you so <laughs> don't feel bad about that either <laughs> Okay, um, so you've got a new story as well, Tom. Well, I have. I have my doubts about reading this one because it's, it's, I suppose we could connect it with education a little bit, although it, it's very tenuously connected. It was just because I had such fine and fond memories of uh, getting the giggles last time we did one of these when I read that story about the cake finds. Oh, gosh. Uh, and we sort of lost it completely, didn't we? And I was in the car yes. in the night recording that um, with you, <laughs> so I didn't disturb the household. Um, and it just made me think, about that skill we have of teach as teachers of kind of being terribly serious in what are actually quite funny situations and, and not completely losing it and corpsing and I, I'd clearly lost that superpower having now moved into lecturing so I thought well I don't know, maybe make it a semi-regular thing that I test my skills to read something out without laughing. Um, or maybe because this will make us perhaps think a little bit of, of some of the more interesting classes we've had uh, in the past. But here we go. It's just a bit of fun. Um, a okay. bit of fun local news. So uh, this is from the Lincolnshire Live website and the headline is Swearing Parrots Removed from Public View at Popular Lincolnshire Attraction. <laughs> Emma's lost it oh, already. It's a, it's a Tom special. A it is, bit. yeah. Okay, so I suppose and, maybe for, for parrots, let's uh, let's substitute pupils and, and see if that gives us a bit more of a kind of uh, education connection. So here we go. The chief executive of Lincolnshire Wildlife Park had to temporarily remove five newly adopted parrots from public view after they started swearing at the customers. The birds were all quarantined together in the same room, but soon discovered they all shared one thing in common, the ability to blast out obscenities. Hearing the foul language, staff around the park couldn't help but crack and smile, which the park's chief executive officer, Steve Nichols, said only encouraged the birds even more. He said, for the last 25 years, we've always taken in parrots that have sometimes had a bit of blue language and we've really got used to that. But just by coincidence, we took in five in the same week and because they were all quarantined together, it meant that one room was just full of swearing birds. The more they swear, the more you usually laugh, which then twig <laughs> triggers them to swear again. 
But when you get four or five together that have learnt the swearing and naturally learnt the laughing, so when one swears, one laughs, and before you know it, it's just got to be like an old working men's club scenario where they're all just swearing and laughing. Mr Nichols, who admits, who admits it's rather funny when the birds swear, said literally within 20 minutes we were told that they'd sworn at a customer. And for the next group of people, all sorts of obscenities came out. And for one of our young girls, they really gave her some abuse. We found it highly amusing and the customers were fine. They were no problem at all. But we worried because we had a weekend coming up and children coming. We put them in an offshore enclosure with the intention that hopefully they'll start learning the other parrots' noises that are around. What we'll do now is release them out, but in separate areas. So at least if they do swear, it's not as bad as three or four of them all blasting it out at once. Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, do you know, I, I'm really glad that you said about substituting it with pupils at the start, because it got me thinking about when you get the call that Estin or Ofsted are coming. <laughs> And you go, right, what are we going to do with that kid? And what are we going to do with that one? And what like, what happens if they come into that class? And yeah. You should never, and this is terrible, you should never um, characterise whole classes or individuals because no, you know, everybody, you know, is, is can change. Um, you don't want to kind of uh, colour your judgment like that. So I'm, I'm, keep, I'm tapping yeah, my, myself on the Estin. wrist there. But <laughs> Estin, what are we going to do? What are we going to do yeah. if this... <laughs> And it's like, you know, do you do you just do they just understand that these are schools and, uh, you know, this is this is the real world or do we (laughs) sanitize (laughs) everything and give them this rosy view? It's very funny. Yeah, I remember when I was on my PGC being told a horror story about a school that, that, that attempted to run their entire inspection week as a rehearsal the week before the inspectors came. I think this was the days when you got a little bit more notice. Uh, so they did the entire week of lessons uh, the week before. And then, of course, when the inspectors came, they did the entire week again. And the first thing that happened was one of the kids shopped uh, the whole scheme to the inspectors and said, we've had this before, sir. <laughs> Oh, that is hilarious. Well, we did have something called Mofsted when I was back. Yeah, we did. We did. We had Mofsted and uh, and they they actually employed um, people to come in and to to do a dummy run for us. And we didn't kind of, we didn't repeat the same lessons. It wasn't like that, but it was just kind of to get us used to and well rehearsed with, you know, people coming into the room and scrutinising us to within an inch of our lives. (laughs) Well, you know me, I'm a bit of a maverick when it comes to things like this. So I did exactly what I would have normally done including teaching a lesson with shock horror no starter in it <gasps> disaster the only thing I did differently when Estin came in the last time I had Estin um, in school was that I hid my omnipresent cup of tea in the instrument cupboard and just got it out to drink it <laughs> oh my goodness sacrilege if they'd have seen that cup of no tea no visible cups How of tea we were told dare you <laughs> no visible cups of tea wasn't I going mean, there. what is that what is that I don't know <laughs> I, just, I just stuck mine in a cupboard on a shelf Oh, that is so funny. Oh, brilliant. I love that. The swearing parrots. Swearing parrots. Yeah, exactly. Working men's club scenario. There's just some some golden quotes in there. It just made me think of the one yeah. time I really corpsed in front of a class. I had a really difficult year nine class and I, this boy was, was being a bit of a pain. And I said, right, I can't remember what he was called now. I probably shouldn't name him anyway. But I said, you know, stop messing about. And he just looked at me and said, it's because I'm ginger, isn't it, sir? <gasps> Oh, that is... Oh, gosh. They do. They absolutely... You have to, and you have to show that little bit of, of yeah. hum, humanity, don't you? You really do. If, if something tickles you, you, you yeah. you've, in certain circumstances, you've just got to go with it. <laughs> Definitely. Anyway, there Brilliant. you go. Brilliant. 
Okay, right. So it's me, um, and this is a kind of a, a soppy Back alert. Back to the classy, is it? Yeah, it's not. I don't know. No, it's definitely a classy book that I'm going mm. to introduce you to. But um, I don't know. For for those of you who who aren't overly sentimental, um, or indeed find anything a little bit cheesy a bit cringeworthy then apologies in advance but didn't um, i describe myself as brutally unsentimental earlier so i'm clearly going to enjoy this yeah yeah you're maybe not going to enjoy this you might want to switch off your headphones but um Um, So I've been interested in this book for a while and I follow um, the author and illustrator Charlie um, Mackesy. I I never know whether I say say, um, names right. Um, I think it's it's Maxie or Mackesy on Twitter. Uh, The book is entitled The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse. Um, And I'll I'll read you a little, a a few little extracts from it. But um, the first thing to say is that he is an incredibly talented illustrator. Um, he does all of his drawings, well, many of his drawings um, in pen and ink, um, and they're just beautiful. And the whole book is is written um, in pen and ink as well. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing to have. Um, but I I had noticed it on the shelf in various different places and I thought, oh, I don't want to buy it for myself. Is that, should I buy it for myself? <laughs> and, uh, and, and I decided not to. And for my birthday, my wonderful mother-in-law, who isn't my official mother-in-law, but I call her my mother-in-law, she bought this for me for my birthday and I had a little cry. Um, because it, it's just it's just beautiful. So I'm just going to read you a little bit from the opening where um, Charlie gives us an insight into what the book's about. And then I'm going to read you a couple of little, little quotes from it. So he says, um, hello, this book is for everyone, whether you are 80 or eight. I feel like I'm both sometimes. I'd like it to be the one you can dip into anywhere, anytime. Start in the middle if you like, scribble on it, crease the corners and leave it well thumbed. The drawings are mainly of a boy, a mole, a fox and a horse. I'll tell you a little bit about them, although I'm sure you'll see here that I don't... Uh, uh, sorry, although I'm sure you'll see things here that I don't, so I'll be quick. The boy is lonely when the mole first surfaces. They spend time together gazing into the wild... I think the wild is a bit like life, frightening sometimes, but beautiful. In their wanderings, they meet the fox. It's never going to be easy meeting a fox if you're a mole. The boy is full of questions. The mole is greedy for cake. The fox is mainly silent and wary because he's been hurt by life. The horse is the biggest thing they have ever encountered and also the gentlest. They're all different, like us, and each has their own weaknesses. I can see myself in all four of them. Perhaps you can too. Um, And then he says, he goes on to say, When I was making the book, I often wondered, who on earth am I to be doing this? But as the horse says, the truth is, everyone is winging it. So I say, spread your wings and follow your dreams. This book is one of mine. I hope you enjoy it. Much love to you all. Thank you. Charlie. So that's an abridged version of his introduction, but it just gives you a little bit of an insight into um, the characters in the book. And it's got a bit of the A.A. Milne about it, a bit of the um, Winnie the Pooh stories about it. Um, You know how Winnie the Pooh and Piglet at times can be really quite sort of prophetic, if that's the right word. Whimsical. Um, Whimsical, yeah. And, And also just a little bit 
sad and a little bit melancholy at times as well and just quite real it didn't patronize children um, and obviously he says that this is for anyone whatever age you are so I thought I'd dip into the ones that I thought might resonate with our student teachers so here's one and obviously um have a look at the book because the the illustrations really do make it but here's the first one so this is um the boy in the mole what do you think is the biggest waste of time comparing yourself to others said the mole I wonder if there is a school of unlearning, says the mole. So that's the first one. We often give that advice, don't we? Yeah. Next one. Um, what is the bravest thing you've ever said? Asked the boy. Help, said the horse. And next one. Um... When have you been at your strongest? Asked the boy. When I've dared to show my weakness, said the horse. Asking for help isn't giving up. It's refusing to give up. These are short, but very profound. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm leaving big pauses in between for a dramatic yeah, I'm effect. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be filling them. Just to <laughs> be I'm still here. I haven't taken my headphones off. Honest, go. You are still here. It's okay. So this one's got a particularly beautiful illustration of the horse laying down with the fox, the boy and the mole all sat on top of him. Um, and I think, yeah, this is from the horse. So here we go. Nothing beats kindness, said the horse. It sits quietly beyond all things. I just like that sentiment that kindness is there sitting there behind all things okay um and another um so this is this is the boy and the horse and the mole all looking at two really beautiful swans on on a lake um and this is the boy how do they look so together and perfect asked the boy there's a lot of frantic paddling going on beneath said the horse the greatest illusion said the mole is that life should be perfect and there's a tiny little note in pencil at the bottom of this page which says my dog walked over the drawing clearly trying to make the point yeah. <laughs> there's loads of little, little inserts like that um two more um do you have any other advice asked the boy don't measure how valuable you are by the way you are treated said the horse always remember you matter you are important and you are loved and you and you bring to this world things no one else can. And then finally, on the final page of the book, um, it says, uh, and this is the boy and the horse walking across some musical notes, so across a stave, it says, um, and this is the horse, just take this step. The horizon will look, sorry, I'll start again. Just take this step. The horizon will look, look after itself. So basically, don't worry about what's on the horizon. Just just focus on taking this first step and all will be fine so probably an absolute cheese vest um <laughs> i'm not sure how that's going to come across because you can't see the illustrations um so maybe so, we will edit some of these it's a tricky out. one to put into audiobook form i was thinking that as you were reading them i think they could, yeah that was your audition to be the audiobook reader of this one this is the yeah, one I i've seen I... all over twitter <laughs> isn't it i've seen these these ones with all the flowery writing 
yeah yeah it, and and he's produced some he's been sort of com- commissioned to produce them for various different people um in different professions so he's done one for teachers he's done one for the nhs workers you know he's been really active during lockdown during coronavirus um and his illustrations really are so so beautiful they're worth they're worth lo- a look um but it's worth getting the book as well There's some really nice sentiments in there and um hopefully those ones uh are, are, are useful to you as student teachers about to start on your journey um, in your first uh, placement which is going to happen in not too long a time Mm, and happy birthday by the way oh thanks (laughs) (laughs) thanks you dropped that in earlier oh i know i know i uh, clearly uh you know humble to the core (laughs) 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 definitely uh don't like to be the center of attention (laughs) um no, hopefully um, there's been something in there that you found interesting. It's our usual kind of uh, splurge of stuff that's definitely chimes in some way with education, but it's hopefully a, a nice sort of departure from the usual, the usual uh, standard stuff we put out. Yes, even the parrots. Which class was the parrots? <laughs> <laughs> I can think of one. <laughs> I can think of more than one. Yes. <laughs> So, I think that's us, isn't it? Yes, that's us done. I think we'll we'll uh, go back to normal service next time, but hopefully this has just been a a relaxing bit of background white noise in your life while you've been uh, chilling out with your email switched off. Yeah, absolutely. And we wish you all the best for a, a, a very well-deserved half-term break and also all the best for the next term. The run-up to Christmas, which will be like no run-up to Christmas we've had before, but good luck with it and take it slowly. Yeah, take it a step at a time. The horizon will sort out itself. <laughs> yeah, and we're all winging it. That was my favourite one. Yes. <laughs> See, it was worth doing. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back in your ears in two weeks' time. Yeah, as usual. As usual. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, all. That was Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Thanks to everyone whose material we shamelessly pinched in order to make this episode. Mary Myatt, Kate Clanchy, Georgina Saunders, Mandy Garrigan, Lincolnshire Live and Charlie Maxey. You can find links to all their fine work in the show notes for this episode. We'll be back with something slightly more substantial next time. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. Mm